Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Not since the beginning of this pandemic, when my brother snagged me a giant box of toilet paper from Costco, had I felt this sense of relief. When I saw it, I did a double take. The shelves at the drugstore were full. Not a couple of measly bottles with the sign apologizing. Not just bare with no sign at all because we all know what's going on. No, they were really full. But despite the bounty, purchases were still limited to two packages of children's pain and fever medication per customer. Which makes sense given everything. Pharmacies are reporting panic buying as children's fever medications remain in short supply. Checking my wholesaler right now, there are very, very few, if any, options available for us to replenish right now. Empty for kids. There's nothing. There's nothing. Yeah, and we talked to the pharmacist, and they said that they're on back order, and whenever they're going to get it is when they get it. For months now, this medication has been in short supply or mostly out of supply altogether across the country. Ask any parent who's had a sick kid and, well, you don't have to ask them if you know that parent, they've told you about it. What has emerged as this shortage has ebbed and flowed is a picture of a problem created by a whole host of factors. From supply chain issues, to illness in the community, to import regulations, to personal hoarding and inequitable distribution. All of those piling one on top of another to leave parents with sick children sitting up at night, wondering if they need to take them to the emergency room because at least they have medicine there. So the question worth asking here is how did all these factors all coalesce around one specific medication. And, oh wait, actually, I'm sorry, it's not just the specific medication. It's a whole bunch of medications. This is just the one you're hearing about. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Carly Weeks is a health reporter at The Globe and Mail who has been following the shortage of children's pain medication and other medications that you might not know about. Hey, Carly. Hi there. I'm just going to start by asking you off the top. I was at the office this week. There's a little Rexall in the strip mall next door, and I found the shelves full of kids' Tylenol, um, and I bought some. Does this mean our shortage is over, or is that just me? Yeah, it'd be awesome just to say the problem is solved forevermore. Um, but I think any parent out there who's been paying attention knows that um, the supply still does seem 
precarious. I think this situation is much improved. And it's certainly since it's been on the radar for so many months across the country, it's not uncommon to now find these products in stock. But we know that there's still just so much sort of um, turmoil going on with the supply chain that I it's, it's hard to say when exactly we're going to see these issues resolved fully. So can you take us back to the very beginning of this then? When did we start to notice a lack of children's for sure, uh, but also adult cold and flu medications? Mm -hmm. Really going back to the summer, you know, even this, even last spring, there were just so many more viruses being reported in young kids. And, and certainly in the reporting that I did, it, I think that that's part of the reason why it did take some surprise, some people by surprise to see what was going on because in the summer, springtime, that's typically when virus season is over. Mm -hmm. But what we started to see was that the the shelves were just being stripped bare. There was a bit of a of a moment in the summer, and I'm not sure how many people would recall this, when a media report came out saying that a major hospital was basically urging parents to only get these medications by prescription. And this idea that children's medication was going to be sort of kept from parents unless they could get it prescribed to them, I think exacerbated what was already becoming a shortage. It was that sort of that moment where the panic buying and, and maybe some of that hoarding started to take hold when parents were, were legitimately afraid they weren't going to be able to find these medications for their young kids. And things really snowballed and escalated quickly from there. So we headed into the fall where true another true virus season peak started much earlier than expected. And then suddenly there were parents who simply couldn't find these medications at all. And then, you know, we found ourselves in that situation that, you know, still continues to an extent today. What are the ramifications of that time, especially in the fall? You know, one of the things that I saw was hospital emergency rooms, uh, you know, CHEO and, and sick kids, um, dealing with massive overflows. And I think we talked to a doctor about this and they said, you know, part of it is that like when you have a kid at home that's suffering from a bad fever and you have no medication, like things can get scary quickly. So you just take them. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and, and any doctor, any nurse will, will tell you, even when things are really busy, when in doubt, go to the emergency room. And so when you do have a very sick child and you can't relieve their symptoms, you know, I, I really sympathize with anyone in that position. I've been there myself, you know, worried about your, your sick kid in the middle of the night or, or whatever else. And, and so the ramifications for that are really huge. It, it, not only for the individuals who are affected by that, but it sort of sends that panic level, that a bit of an alarm through everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone is suddenly then wondering about the precarious nature of our supply chain and how we're going to make sure that we have confidence going forward that we're going to be able to take care of our kids. You've mentioned the supply chain a couple of times. Uh, we've also talked about viral seasonality. This is anecdotal, but I recall a lot of people taking pictures of empty shelves at their pharmacies and posting it to social media, sort of using that as proof that there was way, way, way more COVID around than anyone was telling us about. What do we know about the actual root causes of this shortage? Where did it come from? Yeah, definitely. It's multi-pronged. And I think it's kind of hard to go back and really prove this. But I think that honestly, from the experts that I've been speaking to and, and some officials at Health Canada, I think a lot of that rhetoric that did come out on social media didn't help. Yeah. It's scary. 
it's scary. And then people are suddenly running out to their pharmacy and everyone, their mother, their father, like the concerned grandparents, aunts and uncles, mm-hmm. everyone was trying to get their hands on this stuff. And it's saying, look at the shelves are bare. And this is not to say that, that people were doing this maliciously on social media, but it feeds into that idea of scarcity. And as soon as we as human beings think something is scarce, we seek it. And so that whole idea there, it, it kind of exacerbated what was going on. But of course, there are many other root causes to this. So, you know, drug shortages have become a very serious and growing problem in Canada for at least a decade. Um, and I think that until it really hits home for people, you know, again, with something very common, like an over-the-counter medication for kids, that's really when everyone starts to take notice. So this problem is not new, but now all of a sudden it's affecting everybody. And the ramifications are clear that we need to do something about this. So some of the root causes include things like supply chain issues, which are, have been exacerbated so much during COVID, lack of raw ingredients, you know, contamination, a certain shortage of one material in one area, a plant is at a commission. You name it, these problems are, are ongoing. And the problem is there's very little way for sort of our government to guarantee we're going to have these medications in stock for you because they're being supplied by private companies. So what did the government do then when these photos started filling up social media and it became clear that that we weren't sure if we'd be able to get this if our kids needed them? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that for a long time, they were kind of watching and waiting the situation um, unfold and not not quite sure maybe what action to take. I think there were a lot of discussions going on. Um, you know, they were criticized, you know, rightly or wrongly, perhaps a little bit of both during the summer months and into the fall. What are you doing? What is your response? And I think that there was a lot of um, discussion that was going on between the government, between the companies producing these medications and our government kind of pressuring them saying, look, we need more of this pronto. And the company saying we can only do so much. We're, we're ramping things up, but these things take time. And, you know, as soon as you know that you're in shortage, you're already way behind. It's going to take weeks or months to ramp up supply. Right. And then what, what happened was when it became clear that this was becoming, you know, a crisis that was spilling over, actually, you know, impacting, uh, you know, the prime minister's like approval ratings and he was being attacked for it uh, sort of on a daily basis. That's when we really started to see more action from Health Canada. That's when they were importing. They took the step to import medication from the United States and Australia. They basically said, you know, we're going to expedite these medications coming in. There was, I think, a little bit of um, back and forth about is our labeling laws that were keeping these medications from coming into the country? That was my next question, was because one of the things that everybody was saying at the time was that, oh, we can't just grab it from the U.S. because our labels have to be in English and French. Yeah, and that's interesting how that really became one of the defining issues of just how incompetent our bureaucracy is here in Canada. You know, I talked to one of the top advisors or one of the people in charge at Health Canada. It wasn't the labeling necessarily was or wasn't the labeling at all. What they had to do on this end, once the medication got into Canada, they just were going to put a label on it or make that change once the medication got here. So they they waived those kinds of requirements for companies to bring the medications in with labels, you know, as soon as they could, I guess. But that labeling requirement, I think, took hold because it seemed like such a simple explanation to what is a bit of a more complex, ongoing problem. We mentioned that parents were taking their kids to the hospital or that this stuff might only be available through prescriptions. What are some of the things that uh, pharmacies and doctors can do to help with the shortage that they've been doing? And I guess, you know, even though it may be easing up a bit, uh, things that parents can look to 
if, you know, they can't find it wherever they happen to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it took a while, but once we were several months into this shortage, it became easier for parents to find resources of, here's some alternative things you can do. You know, one thing that came through loud and clear, a lot of people were saying, you don't need to just medicate a fever. You know, if you have a, a sick child, don't medicate them if they're, if they seem happy. I mean, my kids have had fevers plenty of times and they still are playing happily. It doesn't seem to be impacting their mood. You want to medicate the child, not not just the symptom. So if your child is unhappy and unwell, give them medication if they're okay. You don't need to give them medication. That's something that a lot of healthcare experts were trying to convey. The fever is the body's way of fighting off a virus. So unless your child's uncomfortable, you don't need to treat it. That was, I think, a bit mind-bending for some people to sort of say, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, other things. You can take an adult sort of version of a medication and then, you know, do some compounding at home. This is where it gets a little bit more tricky and you really do need to consult with a reputable source, like a pharmacist website to figure out the, you know, sort of the conversion, but you can take a certain dose of a certain medication that's meant for adults and then translate it into something for kids. I'm not going to get into that here, but there's plenty of uh, credible sources online where people can find that. And I guess thirdly, you know, a lot of health professionals and others were trying to give people good advice on when to take your child to the hospital. Here are the symptoms to look for. And I think that's so helpful as parents. When you're panicked in the middle of the night, is my child having trouble breathing or do they just have, are they just congested? Giving people that step-by-step, here's exactly what to look for, I think was just really, really helpful for people. And hopefully, um, I think did, you know, calm some nerves and keep some people at home safe where they needed to be. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You mentioned in particular the, you know, dosing of adult meds for kids blowing people's minds. I think a lot of people looked at that and thought that, like, that's not something that should be happening in Canada, or at least not something that they would ever expect to be happening in this country. We're just not used to that kind of stuff. Totally. And I think that, you know, pre-pandemic, if someone were to say to us a few years ago, this is the new reality, we wouldn't have even sort of believed them. But I think we're in a new world now, you know, like it or not, and and supply chain problems are not going away. And certainly drug shortages are not going away, uh, which is a bit of a scary thought. And, and it, that's why we need to then consider, you know, what else do we need to be doing about this? Um, and, and to guard against, you know, those those insecurities in the future. So natural follow-up question to that, and I remember asking this to uh, epidemiologists around COVID vaccines, can't we just make more of this stuff in Canada? Like, we have the technology. This has been a lesson brought home by COVID, you know, so many times. Um, you know, as it's been well documented that, you know, Canada used to be this, you know, vaccine powerhouse. We gave most of the capabilities away. And now that has come home to roost, right? I mean, you don't need something when everything is going well. But in a time of crisis, that's when you realize the power and value of these things. So I think that there's certainly just so much more discussion that that could and should be happening around domestic supply, uh, making sure we do are able to provide for our population. At the same time, the discussion around even national stockpiles has become, I think, much more relevant. And 
And certainly during the shortage of kids, um, you know, fever and pain medication, that's something that a lot of advocates in the childhood uh, health and wellness space have been advocating for. Make sure there's a supply of this stuff to treat kids across the country. Because what if this was a true situation where this is in short supply everywhere um, and there are kids who desperately need these medications? So there's a number of different things that have been proposed that we need to start seriously thinking about. What are those things? So the national stockpile is one and really thinking about how we kind of keep those essential medicines in stock, not just, you know, those vaccines, uh, you know, in case of like a bioterrorism event or PPE for the next pandemic. Like we saw how inadequate our supplies were in, in 2020. So thinking a bit more strategically about how we make sure we are preparing ourselves for the next emergency, the next problem. It's impossible to predict what will happen next, but what do we need to have to make sure we're safe in the event of some sort of, you know, border closure, supply chain disruption, you name it. Then that's where it gets a bit more complicated. Where do we take it from there? Again, we are talking about private companies that are producing these medications for the most part. So, you know, when we're thinking about drug shortages, and there have been so many, we could list off, you know, thinking back to, you know, in the last number of years, how many I've reported on, in the age-old discussion of how you can kind of compel a private company to disclose why certain things are in shortage. It's difficult to even find out the reasons. Make sure that things are still being being supplied to your to your country. These are things that are not easy to do. We're talking about complex networks of raw ingredients that are being supplied by one company and one manufacturer given to another, made in a whole other place. Like this is a very complex undertaking. And I think that you know, federal government level, these things get talked about, the crisis goes away, and we kind of forget about it until the next crisis. And I think that there does need to be some kind of maybe even an international putting heads together to figure out how we can make sure essential medicines stay in stock. So now that um, the imports have started to trickle in and, you know, you can find this stuff in places, I, I know I can find some at a Rexall in like downtown Toronto, is it equitable the way that it's being restocked? Like it's one thing to be in the biggest city in the country. It's another thing to be in a small town that may only have one pharmacy. Like, is this being distributed fairly? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question. And, you know, one thing that's, I guess, notable is that when some of the supplies started coming into Canada, it was at first headed for hospitals. And a lot of people were really upset by that saying, you know, where parents need these medications for their kids at homes to help them avoid the hospital. But I think on the other hand, you could see that kids who are in the hospital and hospitals across the country needed to have that supply. On that side of things, it it, it sounds as though it was equitable from a distribution point. But I think, again, the, the, if you're living in a smaller rural remote area, chances are it is going to be much more difficult for you to find that medication because there's fewer stores, there's going to be a lot of demand, and there's not a whole lot of choice. So if you, can, if you can't get make it to the Rexall near your office, you can go down the street and find five other pharmacies. Exactly. And then you think about even the people who are living in big cities like Toronto who can't, who have mobility issues, who are struggling, who are working all the time, who can't even necessarily afford these medications. Who can't spend an afternoon trekking across the city to find these things. Exactly. Do we know about the final timeline for this or even if there is a final timeline um, now that it is back in some pharmacies? And again, in those pharmacies, there are signs up saying, you know, we're limiting the purchase to one or two at a time. Is this stuff at some point going to be widely available again? And do we have any idea when that might be? 
you know, you the expectation is that yes, it will be widely available at some point, but the the timeline I think is impossible to predict. If you look to, you know, we were sourcing medication from the United States, and there are now widespread shortages all over the U.S. of fever medications for kids. Huh. So from that standpoint, I think there's going to be a lot more unpredictability in the coming months. Now, again, not to say people should be hoarding these things. You know, you could buy a bottle or two of this medication and be set for a year, but you know, with these ongoing supply chain issues, I, I don't think. That's going to satisfy enough people. People will continue to go out, and there's going to continue to be that mentality of scarcity and fear of not being able to supply medic- medicine for your child. Now it's being exacerbated by what's going on elsewhere. I, it's hard to predict when this will all get resolved, and then it will be the next thing. Yeah, not to not to be a total pessimist, but then there's going to be another shortage, another major issue. I mean, there's a whole range of tier three shortages in Canada right now for drugs. Tier three are um, drug shortages that can actually sort of impact the ability of uh, medical professionals to treat illnesses. You know, they, they, there's not much else they can use if these medications are in shortage. There's a number of them that have been going on for months. Um, so these problems are not going away. Can you just give me a couple of examples of those? Because it's it's funny that we've heard this, but not about that. Yes, it is. and I think that that's because a lot of these medications tend to be a little bit more, you know, specialized or yeah. for things that we don't necessarily think about. For for instance, um, one of the shortages was uh, for amoxicillin for kids. So one of the antibiotics used in kids, I was told that it wasn't a complete panic-inducing moment because there was still a, a supply for adults, and there was a, a you know pharmacists could easily make a, a solution for kids. Um, but at the same time, in recent months, there's been everything from you know epidural shortages to tube shortages for collecting blood samples to uh, medications that are used in routine procedures. It's it's a little bit scary when you do start to dive into this world and realize we have very little control over what medications are in stock. Is the behavior that we are seeing now, now that it's uh, starting to come back, you mentioned people will always have that feeling of scarcity. Does that prolong uh, the problem here? Because now that it is back in stock... Um, I mean, I bought the maximum two that I could. If I could have bought more, Carly, I probably would have. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's just human nature. It was like toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic. Exactly, exactly. And and from then on, I can't remember what the next one, there was all of these like really weird shortages of certain items. Um, and, and, and there are legitimate shortages that are then exacerbated by that mentality of scarcity. So I need to get some because what if it's not available ever again? And so I do think that, you know, reporting on this and the more we talk about it, like it, it makes it worse. But at the same time, these are real problems that need solutions. You know, not talking about them isn't going to make them go away. And certainly, you know, you worry about what is going to be the next thing and how do we guard against that? You know, we were mentioning earlier that there's now, it's difficult to find, you know, fever, cold, pain medication for adults. And, and you know, that's something that will, again, probably continue to ramp up and get worse before it gets better. So it's, um, it is a little bit puzzling. It's a little bit of a struggle and it's, it's a little bit scary too. I was going to end by asking you, you know, what can we do to prevent this? But you already kind of covered that. So I'll just end by asking you, because this is something I've wondered about uh, a lot since this shortage began and the shortage of other stuff. And you just mentioned amoxicillin. Are we gaining a new understanding for what pharmacists can actually do? 
I think that's an excellent point. I think, I think yes, I think that pharmacists are, are some of the, you know, unsung heroes in, in our healthcare profession where, you know, they are able to do a lot. They have many tricks up their sleeves, compounding medications, finding alternatives, you know, cobbling things together. And not every pharmacy can do this. There's special ones. And I think that we need to hold tight onto those compounding pharmacies, the, the few ones that are out there still, um, because they can do a lot of magic that can really get us out of jam like these. Carly, thank you so much for this. And uh, only buy one or two of these things when you see them, everyone. Please. Please. Carly Weeks of The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can tell us, by the way, if your area has this medication back in stock yet. It's funny, I mentioned to Carly, the one downtown was full, the one... Right up the street from me, the drugstore that I'd normally use, still totally empty. So who knows? And good luck. You can write to us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, and you can call us. Leave a message, 416-935-5935. This podcast is available in your favorite player. If you haven't yet, you got to remember to rate and review. That's what drives us up the ranks. That's what lets new listeners find our show. New listeners are how we keep going. Thank you for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.